The Gucci girl, Prada professional, coach queen, or target trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. WebmasterRadio.fm presents First Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan, principal at Top Sales Strategies, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Retan. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. Each and every week, you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country. That's the 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending, the woman. Well, first up from Marketing Daily from Sarah Mahoney's article on Billy. Yeah, Billy, you may not have heard about it. I certainly didn't know about it until I read the article, but it is a D2C women's razor startup already known for its fresh take on, yep, women and hair on the facial region, uh, which, you know, is not something that we've really talked about, I don't think, from a society standpoint. But it's funny that they decided to take on uh, the month-long Movember, which is right now kind of much owned for men and their mustaches, to try to bring awareness to uh, kind of not only their product, but a charity event that they have. They are asking women to grow out, if you will, their womanly fuzz, and they have a video out there highlighting the many ways that women are typically trying to hide those mustaches, whether it's using bleach, wax, threading, or razors, and they are encouraging women to post pictures on social media, and with that, they're going to match 100% of contributions made to its Movember team up to $50,000. So they're embracing the whole uh, uh, women and hair, maybe where you don't want it, to try to drive uh, online for charity. I think it's a fun way to draw some attention to something that we really don't talk about too much, um, and at the same time provide um, some some options for women who might be challenged in that area. So anyway, if you want to participate, check out Billy, B-I-L-L-I-E. Our first profile today is the Target Trendsetter. Uh, this is a woman about, well, gosh, there's a lot of them out there, nine million of them. Uh, she's a mom, first and foremost. Uh, she's around 40 years of age. A third of them are college grads. A quarter of them stay home full-time. The rest of them work. Uh, and they have a, a medium income of about 90K. They see themselves as hopeful, uh, consider themselves to be optimist, really focused on how they spend their time, which they value, at, in fact, over money. They put their family first, as you would imagine. Um, they feel like that they do indulge their kids with those little extras and uh, really likes to spend a lot of her free time at home with the family. She's shopping all the time, she says, even when she doesn't make a purchase. And uh, she's switching up brands for novelty um, very, very frequently. She is seeking out deals, therefore. So it's not the brands that motivate her purchases, but rather the deals. And she does shop a lot online. And she's willing to be drawn into stores where she doesn't normally shop by coupons. Um, she is uh, trying to really manage her money. It's a struggle for her. And she even says that she's not very good at saving money. Um, so that is a priority for her. So where is she shopping? She's shopping at Lands Inn, Old Navy, Gap, Kohl's, um, as you can imagine. And if you're a marketer, where are you going to intersect with her? She's reading a lot of parenting magazines like Family Fun, Parenting, 
real simple uh, uh, red book online, for example, and she is online quite a bit. Um, she's uh, checking out news at CBS and MSNBC, but she's also um, on Disney Channel and um, as you can imagine, in Nickelodeon, um, as well as HGTV, E, uh, Lifetime, and the Food Network. So my guest today is a New York Times bestselling author and journalist. She has a new book that came out just in May called The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Against Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, this comes on the heels of um, a few of her other books. She's also the author of Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure, and The House of Mondavi, The Rise and Fall of an American Wine Dynasty. Uh, she's a veteran correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and Business Week magazine. In fact, she spent two decades in Europe and the U.S. reporting from several dozen countries. She's a graduate in American Studies at Brown and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. And uh, she did begin her career at Business Week. Um, she's been uh, many, many times over awarded for her journalism and uh, and for her field work. And uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to have her on to talk about this latest book. It's going to be featured at the Miami Book Fair coming up November 17th through 24th. So if you have a chance to go see her there, fantastic. If you don't, make sure to stick around, listen to this podcast and uh, be able to purchase her book. I'll let you know where to purchase it at the end. So Julia Flynn Seiler joins me right here after the break. First Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. It passes before it's noticed. A slight rising of the eyebrows, a widening of the eyes. It may be accompanied by an almost imperceptible inhalation. The heart adds a beat like a quiet exclamation point on the experience. Within a tenth of a second, the reaction has passed, but not without leaving its mark. Someone found what they're looking for. Does your website deliver impulses to act? It can. Intended Consequences is the podcast for digital marketers who see their job as changing hearts and minds. If you're frustrated, bored, or in a rut, it's time to spread your wings with me, Brian Massey, and my guests. Find out how successful, curious, creative, and data-driven marketers are making a difference on purpose. Visit IntendedPodcast.com or find us where you get your podcasts. Intended Consequences. Marketing on Purpose. Miami may be the sun and fun capital of the world, but it's also home to the largest literary festival in the U.S. Don't miss the Miami Book Fair, a week-long festival featuring more than 600 authors from all over the world with readings, signings, and panels capped off by a three-day street fair. 
Find books in English, Spanish, and Creole for every interest and every age, from biographies and novels to poetry and comics. This year, come meet poets Richard Blanco, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and Joy Harjo, award-winning novelists T.C. Boyle, Susan Choi, Edwidge Denticott, Taya Obrecht, Julie Oranger, Leonard Pitts, and Karen Russell, plus authors exploring issues of the day such as Eve Ensler, Alex Kutlowitz, Danny Shapiro, Daryl Pickney, Ambassador Samantha Power, George Wilt, and hundreds more. Take the little ones to Children's Alley for hands-on activities, characters, and storytelling. Enjoy music, food, and fun for the whole family right on the downtown Miami-Dade College campus, November 17th to the 24th. For details, schedules, and tickets, visit MiamiBookFair.com. Welcome back to Purse Strings. My guest today is Julia Flynn Seiler. She's a New York Times bestselling author and journalist. Her new book, The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Against Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown, was published just in May of this year, and it's already been called a New York Times book review editor's choice. She's also the author of Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, the Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure, and the House of Mondavi, the Rise and Fall of an American Wine Dynasty. And we're talking to Julia today because she's going to be at the Miami Book Fair coming up uh, just around the corner, November 17th through 24th. And yes, you're right. We're going to be talking about the new book, The White Devil's Daughters. Julia, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Maria. I'm thrilled to have you. Gosh, this book so well researched. I mean, amazing. Congratulations on it. I mean, I know it's, it came out in May, so it's been out for a few months. I have to ask, how's it being received so far? Well, it's been received really well. And one of the most surprising aspects of the book has been uh, the number of people who've come come to me after my talks and said, I had no idea about this story, including Chinese Americans who just Mm -hmm. had no idea about this history. I have to tell you, I was clueless, Julia, clueless. I had no idea. I'm in that camp. And so when I, when I got the book and, and reviewed the book, I was like, wow, how could I not know about this? I'm wondering, is it because it was such a kind of a secret for so many of us that you tackle this particular topic? Like what led you to decide to write about this in particular? Sure. Well, I was um, originally thinking about writing a history of San Francisco, and I'm I come from California and come was born in the Bay Area. Um, and one of the the problems for a historian writing about uh, San Francisco is, of course, the 1906 earthquake, which destroyed so many records. And so there's a big gap there. And in the course of my reading, I came across an absolutely vivid uh, description of. Uh, a woman, a Scottish-American woman who led a, t- a group of 60 Chinese-American girls and young women across the burning city in April of 1906. And her account was so vivid that I almost could see the crumbling bricks. I could see the pavement of the of the of the, the roads split in half and smell the smoke in the air. And I thought to myself, why don't I know about this rescue home and about this courageous group of women? And I wanted to find out more. And that's what led me to this book. And I spent five years researching it in the National Archives and uh, all over the country, including to Scotland, to track down the roots of the, the woman I mentioned. And uh, it was, it's been quite a journey, Maria. Wow. I mean, five years. Have you typically spent that long with each of your books? I mean, each of them 
is so well researched and is is hooked to some some moment in time. Does it typically take that long for you to 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 start and end a book? Well, this one took a little bit longer because the case files and the records of the estimated two to three thousand girls and women who pass through this safe home um, have been locked up for more than a century, and it took a long time for the uh, the folks who who hold those private records to feel comfortable that I would treat them with all of the honor and care that they deserved. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons it took a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to reconstruct stories of, of, of vulnerable girls and women who, for the most part, have never made it into our official archives or our official histories. And, um, and I, I uh, feel that this book is important because it does bring to life some of those stories of women who uh, were trafficked at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as I got to know a little bit more about this through your book, you know, I, I was curious um, why I didn't know about it, right? And I'm curious, how pervasive was the trafficking, you know, in general? Was it pretty widespread? Who was doing it? And what was their motivation? Sure. So the trafficking of Asian girls and women was widespread along the West Coast, particularly of the United States in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, And we don't have a good way to quantify it because in many cases, those girls and women were smuggled in. So we don't know exactly how many came in, but we do have uh, newspaper accounts and other uh, first-person accounts of the arrival of very large groups of girls and women onto the docks of, for example, San Francisco. And, you know, in, in that instance, in the 1860s and 1870s, even after the 13th Amendment had been passed, which outlawed slavery, um, there would be au- open auctions of these girls and women. And these were reported at the time. Uh, and they caused an outrage in San Francisco and elsewhere. Um, so, uh, we don't have a good way to quantify it. The rescue home that I focus on in San Francisco, we can roughly quantify how many girls and women pass through there between the 1870s when the home opened and the late 1930s when it changed its mission. So we know it was somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 girls and women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but of course there were more, many more women who were trafficked during that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the Scots woman who kind of led the charge on this. These were abolitionists, basically. Um, what was it about, what, what did they see in, in the, this trafficking that spoke to them? Why did they risk their lives um, and their good reputation to try to fight this slave trade? Well, that's a, a wonderful question. They were Christians, for one thing. And they were, um, uh, so they were driven by their, their faith. Um, that said, there were plenty of people around them who did not support their mission, including some of their, the, the men in their, in their church and uh, some of their husbands and other, other people. I mean, this was a time when there was very virulent anti-Asian uh, racist sentiment in the United States. And so this very small group of activists um, were really acting against the popular sentiment at the time by uh, 
reaching out to vulnerable groups of girls and women and trying to help them. Uh, and as I mentioned, they did this in part because of their Christian faith, but I think there were other motivations as well. I think they felt compassion, just the way the abolitionists who fought the transatlantic slave, African slave trade uh, felt compassion as well. Um, so, there, of course, there are many different motives for why people do what they do. Um, but with this group of activists, it was just so interesting to me because, of course, in the 19th century, Women in America and many other places did not have the right to vote. They had very little political power. They had very little economic power. Yet this small group of women managed to raise enough money to buy a very large home and to staff it and to run it for seven decades as a safe house. Mm -hmm. What would you say the impact of of what they did really what was the ultimate impact? I mean, it clearly they saved a lot of women's lives. Um, but as you look at the immediate impact and maybe the lingering impact of their actions, can you try to, to describe that? Absolutely. For one thing, they raised the public profile of this social injustice. At the time, they described what they were doing as rescue work and the uh, the girls and women, they describe them as slave girls. Now, today, we would use different words for that. We would say they were early pioneers against human trafficking mm -hmm. and that the, the girls and women who came through the home, some of whom got there on their own volition, uh, were not necessarily rescued, but were survivors of sex trafficking or labor trafficking. So they were very, very early in on this fight that we're now becoming so much more aware of, and that's the fight against human trafficking. Uh, and this, this small group of women, they testified in front of legislators. They uh, attracted enormous amount of newspaper attention to their cause at that point. They helped pass one of the first pieces of anti-trafficking legislation in the state of California. Uh, they hosted presidential parties to the, uh, to the home that they ran in San Francisco. So they were very important in raising awareness of human trafficking in the early 19, or late 19th, early 20th centuries. Mm. So you, you talked about the thousands of women, right, that came through and, and um I'm curious, what happened to some of them? Do you know some of their stories about some of these oh, women who survived and escaped? Absolutely, Maria. And the, um, a large part of the book is devoted to some of those women's stories. Uh, and there are a few that are just so outstanding and inspiring. Uh, one of the women who came through the home was a Japanese woman named Yamada Waka. And uh, she ended up at the rescue home right at the beginning of the 20th century. And with the help of the staffers there, she got an education. In fact, they arranged for her to work with a Japanese tutor in San Francisco. And that tutor in Yamatawaka ended up falling in love and returning to Japan right before uh, the earthquake struck. Well, Yamatawaka then went on to become a leading feminist writer in Japan, set up a rescue home very similar to the one that had been so crucial to her life change uh, in Japan that was modeled after the one in San Francisco. And eventually in, the, in 1937 was invited to the White House uh, by First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. And if that is not a dramatic trajectory, a dramatic story of changing uh, life 
and the course of a life, I don't know what what is. Uh, that's one of the most outstanding stories. It's amazing, isn't it? Just how one little action, and I don't mean little, but just one action can have such huge ramifications, right? Not only on yeah. lives, but society and as a whole. Um, when we come back, I do want to talk about why so many of us aren't aware of this story. You know, what what is it that has kept this, I'm going to say, a, a secret or a mystery for so many of us in our in our history? So everybody stick around. I'm going to continue to speak with Julia Flynn Seiler when we return after the break. Purse Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. are now tuned in to the world's largest online radio podcast network for internet marketers looking to dominate the B2B marketplace. Webmasterradio.fm Webmasterradio.fm is home to some of the most respected authorities in all aspects of internet marketing from SEO to affiliate marketing to social media, e-commerce, mobile marketing, and so much more. Our hosts travel to all stretches of the world and speak to the impact players that are affecting our industry on air, on demand, and available on every mobile device that you can imagine. This is WebmasterRadio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Welcome back. I've been chatting today with Julia Flynn Seiler. She's the New York Times bestselling author of a new book that came out in May called The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Against Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. And uh, she is going to be coming up at the Miami Book Fair right here November 17th through the 24th. And I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to her about this book, which took her five years to research and complete. And it's based on... uh, I'm going to, I'm going to call it a slave trade, right? Trafficking of uh, Asians that as I think for the most part been very much uh, held secret as part of our history. And I'm curious, Julia, why is that? Why, why don't more of us Americans, why aren't we aware of this happening that it happened? Well, historically, the average life expectancy of a girl or young woman who is trafficked 
into sex slavery uh, in the late 19th or late 20th century. It was only four years. They didn't. It was a brutal, brutal life for those women, and often they left very little written record behind. Of course, there were language barriers. They were coming to uh, the United States. They spoke mostly Cantonese at that time, and uh, they they just didn't leave much of a written record behind. And the exception was, for example, one of the exceptions was the woman Yamada Waka, the Japanese woman who came through the home that I mentioned. Likewise, this is a story that uh, is very dark. It's very shameful. And uh, the records, the case files of uh, the women who took refuge at the home have been locked away from public view um, Mm. for more than a century. Uh, So that, that is one of the reasons. But I think the most important thing that we're now starting to see this story and talk about this story is that we have a rising awareness of human trafficking in our country. And um, we can now see this story in an inspiring way that these were a small group of activists, not only women, but the men who did support them, such as the volunteer lawyers and the the policemen who helped support them, uh, who brought about significant change and uh, changed thousands of people's lives. Um, so I, I, I think we see it differently than we perhaps saw it before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're right, exactly. I mean, we are still experiencing human trafficking, racism, dehumanization, and other atrocities in, in, in this country, in this world today, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's not That's- too different what happened then and what's happening now. I mean, sadly. <laughs> Absolutely not. But I'm, I'm hoping that readers come away from reading The White Devil's Daughters and think, this was a small group of people who made a very significant change in a lot of people's lives. In other words, there are there is hope and that this is an inspiring story of people seeing a social injustice and taking what seems like a small action, but in fact can have very large consequences. Oh, well, exactly. And I'm just curious, as you wrote this, and as it's been received, do you feel people are making that connection that they're learning from these brave women who fought against these atrocities so many years ago, and yet there's still an opportunity for us today to do the same? Do you feel like there's these learnings that we can take away from your book and apply today? Well, I certainly hope so. I've recently spoken to uh, several large anti-trafficking conferences, and these are people who are currently today fighting human trafficking. And uh, one of the things that people come up to me after I've told them about this history is that we didn't realize this fight began long time ago, and that there were our predecessors who were fighting anti-trafficking more than 100 years ago. And so I'm I'm hoping they draw some lessons. And one of the key lessons is collaboration, a collaboration between the activists, between law enforcement, between um, uh, cultural groups. And, uh, you know, so that that is that is one lesson that can be drawn from the White Devil's Daughters. 
So you're going to be greeting, I hope, throngs of fans coming up at the Miami <laughs> Book Fair here soon. What day are you going to be there? What kind of details can you tell us about it for those people who actually might be able to make it? Oh, that would be that would be great to see people. Uh, I will be there on Sunday, uh, November 24th at 1 p.m. I'll be in conversation with another author, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, well, I you, you, I know that people will be thrilled to see you. I hope they can pick up the book. And if they don't happen to physically be able to go to the Miami Book Fair, I do want to let everyone know that you can purchase this book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Books A Million, and iBooks, um, and probably a lot of independent booksellers out there. And to learn more about Julia, please go to her website at juliaflynnseiler.com. Julia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Maria. I've really enjoyed it. I have too. And I wish you continued success with that book and enjoy the Miami Book Fair. And thank you to my producer, George, for another great show. Join me right here for another edition of Purse Strings. Until then, make it a great one. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.